0: Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure
1: to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify or YouTube. If you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other maniacs can find us.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter slash X, and now TikTok. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. And this week, in honor of George's birthday, or is it birthdays, we pulled one of our most popular episodes out of the archives. We're looking at George's early home life, his all-encompassing guitar obsession, and the talent that even impressed John Lennon. Plus, we attempt to get to the bottom of the age-old question, What day is George's actual birthday?
1: So before we get into the George episode, we should discuss a little bit, Erica, because George is your least favorite beetle. Yes. So explain yourself.
0: I'm going to own that. There are four beetles. Anybody who attempts to rank the Beatles is going to have to rank them one, two, three, four, and in my ranking of four, George comes in number four, and that's how it's always been. I have been exploring why lately, especially in preparation for this episode. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure why. I am. I am. I I think that. It has nothing to do with his talent or his contribution. I think it really just has to do with how I first experienced the Beatles, which was as a child, and I didn't get his vibe of Don't Bother Me and The Tex Man and The Piggy People. And I didn't know how to process his more complex view of life that he was putting out in his songs. And so he kind of went to fourth for me and i just never really revisited that.
1: You didn't know about taxes when you were a kid? What? No, that's i
0: crazy. knew no, i knew about taxes. I'm saying that it seemed like the majority of his songs were complaining about something.
1: Personally, i connect on a deep spiritual level with complaining, but yeah, i get it.
0: George, i think is
1: people could fight me on this and that's fine, but i think he was probably the most complex beatle in so far as like the other three i sort of feel like are what you see is what you get. And George, you know, he had this persona. He was a quiet beetle. That was his title, his nickname. But he wasn't, you know, his friends will say, like Tom Petty would always say, you can shut George up. He had this really cynical, dry sense of humor. And he was obviously very spiritual. And some people like to deify that, which is a whole other podcast episode. But yeah, I think he is complex. So I could see how George might be confusing to a kid. And maybe that's just sort of carried over to your adult life.
0: I think so. And I think George, too, I mean, I'm not going to say that John and Paul and even Ringo aren't complex in their own ways. They're human beings and they're extremely complex. I think George, if you're trying to connect with George's personality through the medium of his music, I think George seems a bit more opaque. But at the same time, he's also very deep. I mean, for, you know, a 24-year-old guy, 23-year-old guy talking about taxes and you know leave me alone don't bother me and then switching over to this really deep spiritual stuff as he explored spirituality in his life he's very intense about his feelings
1: I think that's a good word for George I think I mean I didn't know him obviously but I think he seems like the type of person who was very intense in whatever he sort of believed or was into at that moment like He was very pissed off about money, (laughs) especially in the later years of the Beatles, which is a really interesting topic, which we should talk about sometime. And then, of course, he did get into the spiritualism and the Indian music. And we'll talk about where that may have come from in a sec. But yeah, I think he was sort of a person who pursued his passions, no matter what they were. So I think that's maybe why songs like Don't Bother Me made it onto early Beatles records. I agree that's an odd track. I love that song. But, yeah, when you compare it to, like, Love Me Do, what the hell?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think that George, as opposed to the other three Beatles, he didn't have time for showmanship or putting on any kind of face. He didn't care. You know, the second they stopped touring, he's like, oh, thank God I don't have to be a Beatle again anymore or something to that effect. You know, he was happy about that.
1: Well, and he got it. Yeah, he, you know, he was the only one who was in the Ruttles, for example. Like, he Mm kind of got the joke, and that's cool. But He also didn't have that pressure. He wasn't Lennon McCartney. He didn't really get cuts on the album. He was a brilliant songwriter, but he didn't really have the agency to express that in the Beatle years. So he was, I guess, kind of in limbo a little bit.
0: Yeah, which is another reason maybe his surliness came through is that he was always treated as a little kid. Even George Martin didn't seem to have that much respect for him and his music. And that, I'm sure, really wears on a person after a while, especially as we'll talk about in when we get into this episode, he was the best guitar player of all of them when they started out.
1: George, from an early age, was just so set on this path, and I'm sure it must have been a complicated relationship this whole time in The Beatles. And I think, uh, let me think about this, I... Yeah, I think he had the best debut solo album that was sort of like his fuck you, you know, this is what you could have had, like, look at me as I walk away, <laughs> you know, and even his demos, like we talked on um, the White Album stuff about like the Esher demos, and I always think about Sour Milk Sea, and I'm like, oh, that's such a fucking great song. And why did he have to pass that along to somebody else? Anyway, I'm getting off topic. But yeah, now I want to just go listen to All Things Must Pass.
0: All Things Must Pass. A triple middle finger to the Beatles. One album. Oh, yeah. One middle finger for each of them. (laughs) One
1: album at a time. One (laughs) LP at a time. Fuck you, fuck you, and fuck you.
0: (laughs) I I feel like George would approve of that message. I think
1: so, too. I think he would have been like, damn it, that's some good marketing right there.
0: (laughs) I don't know about ranking. Maybe George is moving up to number three with me these days, learning more about him.
1: Ooh, I'm going to work on this because I love George. George, at one point, I think I consider him my fave, although I've kind of cycled through them all except for Ringo, sorry. But we'll work on George. George is great.
0: I agree. So this week, which would have been George's birthday or birthdays, we're going to start talking about George, starting with his early life. And I guess the real reason why George seems to have two birthdays.
1: Yes. Well, Erica, in penance for your indiscretions, shall we say, re-George. Tell us a little bit about George. Okay.
0: Okay. This is a happy penance. (laughs) Happy penance.
1: Yes, it is. is.
0: (laughs) So George was the youngest of four children born to Harold and Louise Harrison. He had one sister, Louise, who was 12 years older than him. So essentially a different generation, considering what happened with the war. She was evacuated during the war. By the time he was born, that wasn't an issue anymore. And then he had two older brothers in the middle between him and Louise, so Harold and Peter.
1: Also, I'm gonna pause really quick because you actually interviewed Louise.
0: I did about five years ago when her book came out called, um, I think it was called My Kid Brother's Band. I did an interview with her for Rebeat where we talked a lot about her early life with her mother and father, how their parents were such a huge influence on them, how they were just filled with so much kindness and love and support. And some interesting facts about George's first visit to the United States, which was before the Beatles ever came, which was a visit to Louise, his sister, who had already been living there with her husband.
1: We'll link that interview on our socials. So check that out because it's a really cool interview. It's two parts. And fun fact, if you search Louise Harrison on Google, it comes up like the first or second result. Oh, that's fun. I'm not sure. It's definitely on the first page of Google results.
0: Oh, I'm excited. I feel like we made it. Thanks, Louise. Yes,
1: definitely. That's the bar. We made it. (laughs) We're there.
0: We made Google.
1: (laughs) I did think that was cool, though.
0: As you'll read there, as we'll talk about, I think as people do know, Louise Sr. and Harold Sr. were extremely, extremely supportive parents. Yeah, of course they had issues with making ends meet just like the rest of the Beatles parents did Harold was a bus driver and Louise worked in a shop and occasionally taught ballroom dancing which is very cool
1: Aww. yeah it just reminds me of photos of her dancing with like George and Paul like it I think it was somebody's birthday or around the time of a hard day's night coming out it
0: might have been him and Patty's wedding oh <gasps> yeah I
1: just I'm just Yeah, I'm going to picture her dancing with all the Beatles because she was so cute. I love I love his parents.
0: Oh, yeah. So full of life. So supportive. Uh, The whole family was really close knit. His grandmother, Louise's mother, was even living right around the corner when he was born. So a lot of family around, very loving Um, Louise herself, as you must be if you're a ballroom dancing instructor. She was also a huge music fan. And she was known for her loud and enthusiastic singing voice across the neighborhood. I don't know if that is, uh, if the neighbors were happy about that, but she was certainly known for it, which is really fun. Uh, Love her. Yeah. It's also said, and if you believe that... uh, What you hear in the womb can influence you later in life, it's said that she's at least somewhat responsible for George's love of Indian music because she often listened to the weekly radio India broadcast, as George's biographer, one of his biographers, Joshua Green, said, hoping that the exotic music would bring peace and calm to the baby.
1: Uh, Well, she had no idea. I mean, she she did later uh, on how much that would influence George. Probably subconsciously, if nothing else.
0: Oh, for sure. And if she was listening to it then, she was probably listening to it when he was a kid. It, you know, it wasn't that he just discovered it out of nowhere. That's kind of a family connection he had.
1: I yeah. love that. That's one of my favorite Louise facts. Because it was it's so surprising. You don't expect that.
0: I'd love to see a biopic about George's family. Mm. I think it would be wonderful. Oh my gosh. Make it happen, Hollywood. Let's do it. Another fun fact about Louise, Louise Senior that is George's mother. She's the first unofficial fan club leader. She would welcome fans to George's house when he wasn't there. She hosted the first set of Apple Scrubs, really. And she would write back personally to as many of the fans as she possibly could. Sometimes this correspondence would last for years. She would send them like a piece of George's sock or some (laughs) LPs or just give her the news on what the Harrison family was doing. And she would do this all the way through her life until her death in 1970.
1: So sweet. What a sweetheart. Oh, I yeah, I love that about her. Just like a proud mom.
0: And very authentic. I mean, going back to not only what Louise Harris and his sister was saying, but what we were saying before about George's complex authenticity, both of them had said they were hugely influenced by their parents. And it seems like kindness and being true to yourself and love and support were some of the major themes running through that family. It's interesting when you
1: think about all four Beatles, because they had that support somewhere. Even John, who lived with Aunt Mimi, who, you know, famously said, you'll never make a living out of playing the guitar. His mother, Julia, before she died, was obviously very supportive of his music. Paul's father and Ringo's mom, you know, they all had this sort of support from that foundation. Even George's dad, who we'll talk about in a little bit, who had some misgivings, I think, eventually came around. I think he would have to.
0: <laughs> I'm sure he at least came around by 1965 when George bought him a nice big house to get out of the Speak neighborhood. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did find a wonderful thing about George's father that when Louise died in 1970, he actually took the time to write the fans that she was, had been longtime pen pals with who were surprised that she hadn't been answering their letters over the past few months to let them know.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, my
0: God. I didn't know that. That's so sweet. I I know. Oh,
1: I love them. I want them to adopt me. Can I go back in time and Harrison's adopt me?
0: Yes, you can be the fifth Harrison child. Yay. Okay, cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. If you were the fifth Harrison child, you would have been Mm -hmm. like George and you would have lived your early years at number 12 Arnold Grove. The Harrisons moved there in 1931 and all of the Harrison children were born there. I was a very small house, and as George described it, the front room was never used. It had the posh lino and a three-piece suite. It was freezing cold, and no one ever went in it. We huddled together in the kitchen where the fire was with the kettle on and a little iron cooking stove. It sounds like a very traditional Victorian-era house with a parlor in the front, and the only heat source was a tiny, tiny little stove. Like a two-up, two-down council house, correct? Yeah, with the front parlor and and the backyard. And they had a very small backyard. George had said it was a one foot wide flower bed. And the uh, toilet was outside in the back. And the bathtub was also out there hanging on a wall. I can't even imagine how cold they were
1: all the time. Oh, my gosh. I know, especially in winter in England. My God.
0: (laughs) Good stuff. Um, The house is still there. But since it's not on the National Trust Registry, you can't really go in. People are still living there and apparently they don't really like Beatles tourism. So stand across the street when you take your pictures.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, From what I remember, because I've been there a couple of times, like on the Magical Mystery Tour. I remember going back into like an alley. It didn't seem like a real road. So, yeah, that's probably annoying because it's not on the main drag. It's sort of like you have to go there. And if you're there, you're there to look at George's house. Like TBH, though, if you bought that house, you knew what you are getting into.
0: I know. I don't even know why none of these houses are on the uh, National Trust Registry, but they're not, which is another issue altogether.
1: Because John Paul didn't live there. There, I said it.
0: Ew. <laughs> no, their their houses are though. <laughs> I know, but that's that, that does it's suck. It's true. It does suck. Yeah. I, I thought know. maybe the reason was that in George's actual lifetime, he only lived there six years, and then the house was sold in 1965. So maybe there just wasn't The handover needed to establish it as a National Trust property because the Harrisons had already been gone by the time anything the Beatles did were considered worthy of National Trust properties.
1: That could be true. I mean definitely Mimi and Jim McCartney lived well, Jim I think, moved too. Paul bought him a place, especially after he got remarried. Mm. But honestly,
0: they should get on that. I know. I, I do think so. And if not this house, then potentially the house that George moved to when he was six. His parents finally got approved for a council house after being on a waiting list for 18 years, and they were able to move to 25 Upton Green in the Speak neighborhood, which is about seven, eight miles outside of downtown Liverpool. It was kind of a rough place. George recalled, I remember some nasty moments after we'd moved to Speak. There were women whose husbands were running away and other women who were having kids every 10 minutes. And men were always wandering around, going into houses, shagging, I suppose. I remember my mother having to deal with someone who'd come around cursing and swearing about something or other. She got a bucket of water and threw it from the front step and closed the door and went in. She had to do that on a couple of occasions. <laughs> yeah, Louise
1: Harrison is not here for your shit, guys.
0: Uh uh-uh. <laughs> George lived there, as we said, through the Beatles' early fame. And they moved in 1965 when George bought a house for his parents. Again, this house is also not a National Trust property, but it was bought at auction by a Beatles fan from London in 2014. So I think that it's a little bit more uh, open to Beatles tourism. Hello, this is BC the Beatles from the future coming at you from 2024. When we recorded this back in 2021, this information was correct, but there have been some exciting new developments since then. In 2022, Ken Lambert, an American Beatles fan, bought the house when it went under auction. He restored it to the original decor that would have been there when George is growing up, and he now rents it out as an Airbnb. So next time you visit Liverpool, you too can stay in George's childhood home. All right, back to the episode. As far as George himself, he first attended the Dovetail Primary School. And I didn't know this. I think this is really cool. He was attending that school for at least a year or two at the same time as John Lennon was attending that school, that they didn't know each other wow. because John was two or three levels above him. Oh, wow. So they may have like
1: brushed shoulders when they were teeny tiny little kids.
0: Yeah. I mean, if he did, John was the one to brush the shoulder and maybe brushed it a little harder than he should have for a little kid. But <laughs> Oh, my
1: God. That is hilarious. I That's going to be headcanon from now on. They subconsciously had their first interaction as kids, and John was a bully.
0: (laughs) All right, I see you later. Go write that fan fiction.
1: Oh, my God. No, no, but maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe.
0: (laughs) Continue your fan fiction in 1954, because in 1954, he started attending the Liverpool Institute, which is almost surprising that he attended that school, because it was actually a very long bus ride away. It wasn't the local school. It must have been a conscious choice for his parents to send him there, which is great because that happens to be where a fellow bus rider and schoolmate called Paul McCartney was also attending school and they met on the bus.
1: George was not the best student, obviously. None of the Beatles were. Still brilliantly smart in his own way. But he was, as we said at the top of the show, totally obsessed with the guitars, right?
0: Yeah, he would sit in the back of the classroom Looking like a total scary teddy boy wearing tight jeans with slick back hair, just drawing guitars in his notebook instead of concentrating on school.
1: It's funny because when you see those pictures of George when he's like 13 and he looks like a teddy boy, it's like, oh, you're a little baby, but you're trying to be so tough.
0: I know, but he's actually a little bit like the look in his eyes is real steely.
1: That is true. He could probably fuck you
0: up or he, he thinks he could. Mm hmm. But he's he's 13 and it's like Simba trying to, baby Simba trying to roar. It's just not there yet.
1: Oh, oh, I'm going to think of that. That's going to be the metaphor now for (laughs) baby teddy boy George. It's like Simba trying to
0: roar. Oh, I don't think George (laughs) would like that very much. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Well, too bad. That's the thing now. love it. I love it.
0: So yeah, obsessed. And he had, of course, his musical idols in the 50s, like Carl Perkins, which one of his Alter ego names eventually became Carl Harrison after Carl Perkins. Big, big time obsessed there. The skiffle pioneer Lonnie Donegan. And of course, after 1956, he felt that he had his epiphany moment when he heard Elvis Presley coming out of somebody's house window and was just floored by it.
1: Yeah. And of course, you know, the Harrison House was filled with music and it was usually people like, you know, Bing Crosby and Josh White and Hoagy Carmichael, um, probably still, you know, the Indian radio coming through, via Louise. Um, and George has said the song that inspired him to pick up the guitar, which I thought was interesting, is Waiting for a Train by Jimmy Rogers, which is not what you would think of. It's a typical sort of like, inspiration for somebody who would eventually play lead guitar. It's like a country sort of swaggering. It's a great song, but it's it's very different. Uh, it's like an old sort of classic country tune along the lines of like a Hank Williams.
0: It Kind of makes sense because uh, skiffle music was very much a, a country influence. That was probably a lot of the more popular music at the time playing in the Harrison household was country inspired.
1: I mean, there's definitely deep ties everywhere. So Mm -hmm. something he heard in Waiting for a Train was the thing that set him off. And this is something I didn't know, Erica, uh, before we started researching this episode. But George is actually in the hospital with a kidney inflammation when he decided that he needed a guitar. (laughs) When he was like, this is it. It's like, I got to pull the trigger and get a guitar.
0: Which is kind of crazy because that's basically how Ringo got into the drums.
1: Right. I didn't realize that. That's crazy.
0: Which is really fun because now we've found three very early connections from George to John Paul and Ringo.
1: We can go on forever about how the Beatles were kismet and how in a million years, this kind of thing, meaning Beatlemania and the Beatles can never happen again. But it's it's eerie sometimes how yeah. their stories parallel in these odd ways. I don't think it was the same hospitals. Ringo would have been a different time anyway, but... It's just that weird connection where you're laid up in bed and you're like, okay, music, got to do that.
0: (laughs) And then another thing which I didn't know either was that George was the one to influence his friend Paul McCartney to start playing guitar because Paul at that time was learning trumpet. His dad was a trumpet player, so that's the instrument (laughs) he was on. And then he took an interest in George's guitar.
1: I'm just thinking about Paul playing trumpet um, on that Like when the Saints go marching in Uh, thing?
0: Well, it's (laughs) been a couple of years. I don't know how long you played the trumpet. Oh,
1: God bless him. George's guitar, when he got out of the hospital, he bought it from a friend. He called it a cheapo guitar for three pounds. And then he broke it because he tried to remove a screw from the neck. And uh, he was like, fuck that. And he shoved it in a closet, (laughs) (laughs) which I can, I understand. I've done that before, but I've been like, I cannot with this. And just shove it in the closet. And then his brother, Pete, found it, fixed it. God bless you, Pete, doing the Lord's work. um, And then George played it, although it never sounded that great.
0: Nice to be looking out for your little brother.
1: What a nice family.
0: Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the nice family, you know, George got really determined that he was going to be a musician at this point. And his father was kind of nervous about this. It's a non-traditional direction. You know, times are hard enough. So when he told his father he was going to do this, his father was nervous, but he was still really supportive. One of his father's friends taught him how to play some of his first songs, like Whispering and Dinah. Very nice.
1: That is very nice. I mean, even though Harry, God bless him, did try to get George into the electrician field, George worked for a time as an apprentice electrician at the Department store of Blacklers of Black in Liverpool. But George said that it didn't really last that long because he kept blowing <laughs> things up, his words.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah. If if only we had TikTok back then because we would have some great <sighs> videos of young George doing some really messed up stuff at his job. <laughs> oh,
1: my gosh. That would be hilarious. I want stories for people who worked with him just to hear how shit he was at being an electrician. He good at explosions, bad at electricity. Not a good combination, really.
0: Not at all. But he was better at the guitar. <laughs> so, you know, yes. that, that ended fast. And he started forming a band. His first band was a skiffle group, of course, called The Rebels with his brother, Peter, and another guitar-obsessed friend, Arthur Kelly, who comes up a lot in his early recollections. I think they were very close. Is that who
1: he named his haircut after? Oh, Maybe. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that would be hilarious. I don't know, but that's (laughs) hilarious if it is, I hope so. Another headcanon being established.
0: Oh, this is some good fanfic writing here.
1: Hell yeah, somebody write this.
0: (laughs) George's Giffle Group actually had a gig or two. Their debut gig was at the British Legion Club in Speak, where he earned 10 shillings, which is about $22 United States dollars in today's money. That's not even worth it. It's really interesting about how they had all these, like, town halls and these dances where these upstart young bands could play gigs. Like, I don't know yeah. where you get a gig nowadays if you're in high school and you're in a band. Like, what do you do? You have to take it online? Like, there aren't places like that now. <laughs> well, today,
1: yeah, probably. But in Stone Age, when I went to high school, like, 20 years ago, ugh, gross. We had a band uh, in school. A couple of my friends had a little rock band, and they played at, like, the Legion Hall. and. Town and this is small town Ohio, uh, for anybody who doesn't know. But we had like an American Legion Hall and they would do dances there. I remember after football games, we had like a concert and they would play and it was really fun. So I imagine that's kind of what it was like when George's Band or later the Beatles would play the halls around Liverpool. Just a lot of fun, like a bunch of kids just hanging out and dancing and, and enjoying music by people you knew from a school, which is the weirdest part. I don't know, maybe. That's not a thing anymore, but I'm glad I got to experience it (laughs) when I was a kid.
0: Maybe it's a regional thing. When I went to high school, I mean, I didn't live in a town that had clubs or anything like that. So if you were going to have a band, you either played in your garage or maybe you joined, you know, the band for like the high school musical or something like that. But there wasn't like you had a DJ at a dance. There was never live music there. And then, you know, the clubs in the biggest city close to us, like weren't old enough to be there. So. That's really cool that you had that opportunity where you grew up. That's neat.
1: Yeah, it was cool. So there were no kids in your high school that had like a a band together?
0: I mean, there were, but nobody ever heard them play. That's disappointing. Yeah, like they played for themselves, I guess, or maybe at a house party or something like that. But there was never like, these guys have a band and they're playing at this place and, you know, they'll be dancing and, you know, come or they'll be like, picked up to play a couple of songs at like the high school homecoming dance like that never happened. That's so
1: interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's like a more of a smaller town or in Georgia's case, back in the 50s, uh, kind of deal, which kind of the same thing, to be honest, these clubs for all ages, obviously, like my, the band I would go see was playing it. Like I said, like an American Legion Hall where it's no booze being served to like high school kids. And it was just kids hanging out. It was very innocent. But it was fun. Those are really good memories.
0: It's definitely the way that all of these bands kind of got to know each other and sort of changed personnel from time to time when they needed and something yeah. for one another. I mean, there was a real community going on, obviously, because yeah. we, we got the Mersey sound.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, where we had one band in high school, Liverpool had God knows how many bands, you know, Mersey beat, would try to catalog them over the years, but too many to really go through.
0: So George's start in The Beatle Legend, was officially on February 6th, 1958, a few weeks before his 15th birthday. Uh, He had (laughs) known Paul for about a year then. They bonded over music, going to and from the Liverpool Institute on the bus, sharing their obsessions together. And they were jamming together a little bit, um, even after Paul's family moved away from the Speak neighborhood to 24th Lynn Road, which is the house we associate with Paul's childhood. He still hung out with George and they still played together. And when the Quarrymen, which Paul had joined John in the Quarrymen by this time, needed another guitar player, Paul suggested George. And George was much younger than John. And John thought
1: Paul was pretty young, but George was even a little baby to John, I'm sure.
0: Well, John was around 17 at that time. I mean, think about hanging out with a 14-year-old. Who's trying to be like this little hooligan, you know what I mean? It's Lame. As John once said, George looked even younger than Paul, and Paul looked about 10 with his baby face. (laughs) But George was too good to pass up. So then John also said, we asked George to join because he knew more chords. We got a lot from
1: him. That definitely speaks to George's talent, that they let this like pipsqueak join the band.
0: John Lennon had high standards and he Mm. didn't, he didn't accommodate people because he felt bad. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he wouldn't be like, oh, I'm, you know, this guy is so cute and he's nice. We should give him a chance. Fuck no, that wasn't John. <laughs> Clearly, nah. John was impressed by George's talent. So he felt that he had to be part of this thing that they were starting. And another advantage to having George around is that his mom would let them rehearse at the house and even give them little cups of whiskey occasionally. So that's very nice. Okay, there it is. Yeah, yeah. A much better (laughs) environment than with John's Aunt Mimi, who thought George looked like a scruffy teddy boy and didn't love the sounds of three teenage guitars, to say the least.
1: Yeah, I think she liked George the least out of all of John's friends. She would always make him use the back door when she let him in the house, when she let him in (laughs) Mendips, He
0: must have looked real scruffy.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. And maybe it was his, like, his little dark swagger for a little kid, you know, that she was like, no, I don't, I'm not into that.
0: Yeah, I can kind of see Aunt Mimi sort of looking at George and be like, I don't trust you.
1: (laughs) You're going to steal something. I know it.
0: But using the back entrance, that's, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty obnoxious. can't have teddy boys wandering in and out of your house. That's true. John was hard enough to handle as it was. Want any 14-year-old yeah, no influences to make him even you know, scruffier than he already <laughs> was in his life.
1: Yes, those 14-year-olds those from Speak.
0: It didn't, it didn't seem like the nicest place, though. Yeah, true. I think we're going to leave our story off today because the rest is history. These three boys became J-Page 3, then Johnny and the Moondogs, the Silver Beetles, to the Beatles. And da, da, da. Yeah, and the Beatles.
1: So we're talking about George's birthday. Since my early days of being a Beatles fan, and I actually became a Beatles fan in February, now they think about it.
0: Oh, happy anniversary.
1: Thank you. The one thing that you learn about George is like which which day is his birthday? The twenty fourth, twenty-fifth. Right. <laughs> it's so weird. Why is there that
0: discrepancy? Even he didn't totally know. He thought that his birthday was on the 25th. That's what his birth certificate said. That's what his family celebrated. But then sometime in the 80s, he found out that he was actually born at 1142 p.m. on the previous day, February 24th.
1: Oh, my God. That's so, like, world-rocking, especially for somebody who is maybe into mysticism and spirituality, who may have relied on, like, sun and moon signs and, like, where the moon was when the moment you were born and that kind of thing.
0: And it wasn't even definite then. His sister, Louise, who was old enough to remember his birth, said, "That's not true. He was born after midnight on the 25th. So there was, oh my a, God. <laughs> there was always this question of when exactly he was born. So George ended up with very good nature, taking advantage of the situation, and he would celebrate two days. Um, Olivia would say <laughs> that if somebody wished him happy birthday on the 24th, he would say, "Oh, but my birthday's not till tomorrow, so you have to wish it to me then." And if somebody wished him on the 25th, he'd say, wait, my birthday was yesterday. Why didn't you wish me happy birthday yesterday? Oh, my
1: God. That's hilarious. It's definitely making the best of it. Yeah. That's so funny. Very George. That speaks, See, that speaks to his fun sense of humor.
0: It A lot does. And I'm, I am happy to have explored this little uh, jaunt into George's early childhood, especially in his birthday week. And I can definitely say that that his place in my mind is rising quite a bit. Ah, uh, well good,
1: because he is great and this has totally just made me want to binge George all week. Love him so much.
0: This will be the first of many George episodes we have, I am sure of it.
1: But... Yes, definitely. So yes, happy birthdays to George on both February twenty fourth and twenty
0: fifth, I yes. guess. Forty eight hours of birthday. Thanks again for listening to BC the Beatles, and we hope you're marking George's birthday week in style. As always,
1: subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And please give us a rating review so other Beatle Maniacs can find us.
0: And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and TikTok. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.